Welcome to Project Zion Podcast. This is Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. Our discussion today is part of a series of conversations about the historical and theological journey of Community of Christ. Our resident panel members are Locke Mackay and Tony Cheval-Smith. Locke is an historian, the director of Community of Christ Historic Sites, and serves on the Council of Twelve Apostles. Tony's a theologian who teaches scripture and theology at Community of Christ Seminary and Graceland University. Both Locke and Tony are familiar to Project Zion listeners, so we welcome both of them this morning. In this series, we're following the development of the early church, the reorganization, and our journey as Community of Christ. We'll look at important church events in their historical and cultural context as well as corresponding theological developments and their impact on the church. So today we're talking about Wallace B. Smith, and we're going to begin, I think, Locke, with you. Don't we normally begin with the historical commentary? All right. So we'll start with you. Welcome this morning, Locke. Always great to be with you, Karen. Wallace B. Smith was born in 1929, one of W. Wallace Smith's three children. He married Ann McCullough Smith, and Wallace, or Wally, was an MD focusing on ophthalmology, uh, quite successful. And then he was designated as his father's successor in 1976, to be found in Section 152 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In a break with tradition, W. Wallace stepped down after a very intensive two-year period of preparation for his son, with Wally ordained in April of 1978. Although an active priesthood leader locally and serving on the Standing High Council, Wally had very little theological training prior to his appointment and little exposure to the inner workings of the church, making his appointment significantly controversial among some general church officers. He served as prophet president until April of 1996 when he retired having named a counselor in the First Presidency, Grant McMurray, as his successor in a September 1995 pastoral letter to the church. Wally's tenure is most often remembered for the building of the Independence Temple, uh, that as part of Section 156 that we'll talk about, the ordination of women, also part of Section 156, the Restorationist Schism, which started earlier with Restoration Festivals, but grew quickly after 1984 and the decision to ordain women. He's remembered for the move towards Community of Christ as a new name for the church, although it wasn't officially accepted until after Wally's retirement. He designated a non-Smith, Grant McMurray, as his successor, again, a significant break in tradition. Also during this time, a program that there was significant focus on faith to grow, to strengthen members and increase membership. Unfortunately, that 
was swallowed by the Restorationist Schism. Also, during this time, the Lundgren murders in, Colt, in Kirtland. So let's look a little more at section 156. This is April of 1984. It released Charles Neff from the Council of Twelve and called Jeffrey Spencer to replace him. It discussed the purpose of the Independence Temple, explored priesthood calling and commitment, an attempt to, to engage more fully priesthood members and better prepare priesthood members. It opened a path for the ordination of women, and it reemphasized the role of members in bringing about the cause of Zion. We're going to specifically look at the Independence Temple and then at ordination of women, but let's look at the temple first, a little context. You'll remember that our history as Christians with temples seems to be rooted in the book of Acts, which we very much focused on. It was, it was almost the template for what we thought the church should look like in 1830s Kirtland. And because Acts describes a time sorely in Christian history, the people are still Jewish, the temple still played a role in the life of the church. That's what we thought we should do as well. So in Kirtland, we planned not just one, what they typically call the house of the Lord, but three, those instructions in section 91 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that's LDS 94. Uh, one of those is the one that was built then just south was going to be a house for the presidency or an office building. Further south, a house for their printing operations. And it was uh, our tendency to fill our public squares with temples, which often led to conflict with neighbors. We weren't putting courthouses in the middle of our communities, but that's sacred buildings. And independence, at the same time, plans for a temple quickly grew from one to a 24 temple complex, and then the community was going to surround that complex. Our understanding of what fell into the realm of sacred was very broad, with schools for children, print shops, church office buildings, and storehouses for the poor, all considered worthy of being housed in temples. Sidney Rigdon in 1838, far west Missouri, is talking about a temple we hope to build there, what it's going to be used for, among other things, it was going to be a place to educate our children, both male and female, to protect them from the more learned, he said. Throughout much of the 20th century, we dreamed of building a temple in independence with children saving coins to contribute to the cause. As we talked about, it, I think, in an earlier episode, in 1968, W. Wallace Smith brought Section 149 to the church, calling for, quote, a start to be made toward building my temple in the center place. And then it quickly in 149A, clarifying that there would be no provision for secret ordinances now or ever in the Temple of Independence. Wallace B. Smith's 1984 section 156 called for work on building the temple to continue at an accelerated rate. For quote, there is a great need of the spiritual awakenings that will be engendered by the ministries experienced within its walls. Specific details of temple ministries were supposed to be developed by the First Presidency, according to 156. It's going to be dedicated to the pursuit of peace, reconciliation, and healing of the spirit. It's going to be a means of strengthening faith and preparation for witness. It's going to be a place for leadership education and uh, for priesthood and members. The essential meaning of restoration is healing and redeeming agent 
just to be given new life and understanding through temple ministries. And it was called to be an ensign to the world, a symbol to the world that uh, kind of morphed into an ensign of peace, a phrase picked up from section 102 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Fishing River Revelation. Shouldn't be surprising that there's significant overlap between the functions of the Independence Temple and the Kirtland Temple, with both serving as houses of public worship, with a strong emphasis on empowerment, both spiritually and intellectually. The designs are nothing alike, but the functions of the spaces are worship, education, church administration. In Kirtland, we focused in the 1830s on endowment or spiritual empowerment. In section 156, that becomes spiritual awakening. In Kirtland, we had the School of the Apostles, the Kirtland, Ohio Theological Institution, which included Hebrew studies, Kirtland High School, which included reading, writing, English, Greek, with students ranging in age from six through adults. In independence, that becomes education for priesthood and members. Kirtland focused on preparation for mission, and you couldn't actually, as a missionary, go overseas until you had been endowed with power from on high in Kirtland. Independence also understood to be a place for preparation for witness. Lots of overlap in the functions. I believe Kirtland, though, was somehow perceived to be a threat, probably because of the restoration of schism, by some church leaders. So instead of connecting with and building on Kirtland and the history there, the 1994 Independence Temple dedication, I think, was in some ways intentionally disconnected from Kirtland. So for example, we didn't sing the spirit of God like a fire is burning, which I think personally was a mistake. I recognize it's a fight song and we're a peace church, so that's a little problematic, but we could, as we eventually did, simply rewrite some of the verses and reclaim the lion and the lamb verse, one of the original six verses uh, rewritten uh, by Andrew Bolton and and Randall Pratt. Um, So I I think we would have been helped by building on Kirtland instead of intentionally, in my opinion, disconnecting from it. Uh, That part of 156, the the Independence Temple, the preparation of priesthood, um, that's often lost in the controversy surrounding the ordination of women, which 156 uh, provided for. So again, a little context on on the role of women and priesthood in the church. Emma Smith, of course, in 1830 is ordained to expound scriptures, section 24, it's LDS section 25, Harmony, Pennsylvania. The ordination of Emma's counselors in the Relief Society occurs in 1842. And when somebody asked why Emma wasn't being ordained in 1842, Joseph explained it's because she already was in 1830. Joseph Smith Jr. told the Relief Society in March of 1842 that the society should move according to the ancient priesthood, and that he was going to make of the society a kingdom of priests, as in Enoch's day, as in Paul's day. Joseph turned the key over to the Relief Society uh, in 1842. Now, later in the LDS tradition, historians would change that from, I turned the key to... They, that's changed to, I turned the key on your behalf. <laughs> didn't want to let any authority slip out. Women in Nauvoo were performing healing blessings. And when men complained about it, Joseph's response was, well, 
does it work? Well, well yeah. Okay, then. What's the problem? <laughs> uh, Rosanna Mark said this to E.C. Briggs. Oh, I did not have to call for the elders to minister to my children. Often I would anoint them with oil when sick, and they would immediately be well. Fast forward to the reorganization. D.W. Mills anointed and set apart Emma Burton in 1890 to administer to the sick among the females of the church. That infuriated Apostle T.W. Smith, who called it a square out-and-out -out ordination. He was not amused. Emma Burton went on to perform healing blessings in California, French Polynesia, and Australia. The General Conference in 1905 considered a resolution to ordain women, although it was not considered favorably by the presidency and the 12, probably because the motivation for the resolution was that if women were ordained, they could get free passage on the trains. <laughs> so <it> was, <laughs> not necessarily a theological argument, but a, an economic, a financial argument. In 1920 and 1935, Fred M. discussed the possibility of ordaining women in the Saints Herald. By the 1970s, women were being called to priesthood offices, but the calls were not being processed by district and stake officers. World Conference Resolution 1141 in 1976 resolved that consideration of the ordination of women be deferred until it appears in the judgment of the First Presidency that the Church, by common consent, is ready to accept such ministry. In 1980, New Zealand and parts of Australia brought a resolution to conference calling for the authorization of national churches that would then consider uh, ordination of women and other related activities at an, as a national jurisdiction. So a forerunner to the eventual development of national conferences that did not pass. Um, and then of course, finally, section 156, 1984 from President Wallace B. Smith. My, my sense is that section 156 and the ordination of women felt disjunctive to many members. It felt like a complete break from the past. I believe we would have been well served to better provide members with tools to process change by educating them on our then 154-year-old history of exploring the relationship between women and priesthood authority. I'm not arguing that we should have made that decision in 1984 because of the, the history from the 1830s and 40s. I am arguing that members would have been more easily able to do the mental gymnastics necessary uh, to get there if we had better equipped them. Uh, the people who care most about what happened in the early church are the same people who probably objected most strongly to ordaining women. So I, th I think we would have been helpful to, to better equip them. Having said that, a lot of the best source material is from the Relief Society minutes and it was not available in 1984. It was locked up in vaults in Salt Lake. Initially, those who hoped to reverse Section 156 uh, came to the 1986 conference well-prepared with lots of uh, parliamentary maneuvers, again, trying to remove it from the Doctrine and Covenants. When this didn't happen, a more significant schism developed with thousands separating into restoration branches, they became known as. Many felt strongly about maintaining their names on our rolls. They worshiped separately and didn't support the church financially. Uh, they often, those branches, continued to split over various topics. 
And like many others, they have struggled to keep their children engaged, as in, of course, Community of Christ. Some of those restorationists united under Frederick Larson and established the Remnant Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Fred suffered a stroke in 2019, and there was confusion regarding his designated successor following his death. So that group also split. So uh, um, the history of schism has continued since 1984. So to summarize Wally's tenure, uh, 1978 to 96, 18 years as prophet president, a time of very significant change, a time of disruption as families were torn apart over the ordination of women. In some ways, it reminds me of the 1844, 45, 46 period as families came apart trying to figure out who to follow, whether to accept polygamy after Joseph's death. Uh, Wally's time in office, though, was also a time of celebration, as the worth of women was finally fully recognized, and the long-dreamed-of temple in the center place was constructed and dedicated. So, Bach, I just wanted to ask um, a, a, a question on context. So sometimes we look back at this time period and and from our lens now and say, oh my gosh, why were so many people upset about women's ordination? But in 1984, that was only a couple of years after the ERA amendment officially tanked and women had been going through a, a huge struggle to try to get that passed in the United States. And finally, it was defeated. And so we forget that there was there was all around us at that time a struggle within the United States to, to try to determine the role that women would have going forward. And we still don't have an equal rights amendment today. So this was really progressive and shocking for people at that time, but it was also part of a larger conflict. Yeah, not just a church issue. Uh, yeah. Which I think we're seeing today on lots of topics as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I guess that wasn't a question. That was a comment coming from my my own um, perspective perspective of that time, that that was just a really difficult, difficult time. Okay, Tony, let's delve into what that means for us in our theological journey. There's a lot of content there. Where are you going to start? Where am I going to start? Well, this is going to, this is going to be both easy and difficult. The difficult part is that a good historian will tell you that the more recent stuff is the harder stuff to get at because we don't have the space of distance to see it. And so we're now talking about a period in which, in which uh, uh, I was coming into uh, significant activity in the church. And so in 1983, my wife Charmaine and I were hired by the Michigan region of the church to be executive ministers for two years. And so we were working for the church as executives in 1984 when Section 156 uh, was offered to the church. So, so uh, this, is, this is like contemporary history. This is my life we're talking about right now. <laughs> so in some respects, I, I, uh, I will claim that my lenses will be a little bit foggy on this, but I'm happy to claim that. And I'll tell you what I think, and you can take that as it, however you want to take it. Um, so... For, for decades now, Charmaine and I have taught a class at Grayson called Community of Christ Theology. And in our syllabus, we titled 
we, we used, uh, used a phrase of a 1960s movie that Charlton Heston was in to describe the, 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 the period of the 1980s, the agony and the ecstasy. Right. The movie about Michelangelo starring Charlton Heston back in the 1960s. Um, I, could, I could quote Dickens here, too. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> best of times. Uh, the the, the ch- church population and church activity was kind of, in some respects, at its peak. Large reunions, larger congregations, um, a lot of excitement about being part of the, being part of the one true church. OK. On the other hand. The, the agony was that the, the work that had been done in the 60s and 70s was still very much alive in church leadership. And what had happened in the meantime, when we, when we got to 1984, schism was inevitable because there are already two churches, in my view. Um, it's not inconsequential culturally that the schism in our church happened in a period when the religious right in American culture was on the ascendancy. Because the, the, the groups that broke away would have shared the same kind of cultural, political, social, conservative values of generally things like the moral majority and other, other groups from, the, from that period that, that were uh, trying to, to reclaim some sort of glory days they remembered partly rightly, partly wrongly from the 1950s. So I think it was inevitable that this, this, this was a marriage that was not going to work. Um, you had you had a large number of, of, of church members who were were still who who had not taken in the critiques of the 1960s and still thought that the preaching chart was was uh, a doctrine that had been dropped from heaven. They were only they were uh, showing it in the form of slides called "Go ye and teach slides," and so they they had not taken Arthur Oatman's uh, thoughtful critique in 19, the 1960s that that doctrine is our best guess. And doctrine can be reformed. They they assumed that doctrine were infallible truths, and they assumed that the go ye and teach slides, the one true church, the, the preaching chair theology, that 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 was an immutable thing that had always been from 1830 on. And along with that went a real lack of historical consciousness about development, about how things change and move and develop. So, so essentially, we had a fundamentalist church inside the reorganization. And another church that was sort of struggling to be born that was coming out of the 1960s and 70s and that that was yearning for uh, for some kind of relevancy to the late modern world. So that was it was just simply. Uh, you know, I, I, I understand what Locke was saying. I, I'm, I'm not sure I fully agree just simply because I, I think the 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 theological worlds these two groups were living in were so different. There was just simply no way that you could imagine uh, a reconciliation of those worlds. So what can I say about the spirit? Well, let me, let me go to um, Locke mentioned that the, that the section 156 struck many people as disjunctive. Actually, that's a word that was, that appeared in a 19, a January, 1984 editorial in the Herald from the first presidency, probably written by Alan Tyree, though it's not known for sure. The the the, the uh, editorial was titled "New uh, uh, Like New Revelation," and its whole theme was disjunctive revelation. How how new revelation, if it's really new, will often be disjunctive with the past. Uh, at, I remember reading it at the time. Uh, church, church members uh, read their heralds a lot then, <laughs> and I remember a lot of us reading the January Herald and reading that editorial and thinking something's up. <laughs> 
here we are a couple months away from World Conference and something's up here. So at the time, it seemed like a brilliant statement. As I look back at it in retrospect, I think it was the wrong language. So uh, this was a place where one could have made the case. The ordination of women is not disjunctive with the past. It was it was pushed aside in the past and actually was in the past. There are women deacons, women apostles mentioned in the New Testament, women prophets. And so it, dis, disjunctive made it sound like um, this was going to be uh, a departure from orthodoxy. And that's how uh, Section 156 struck a lot of uh, uh, restorationist-minded church members then. It was a departure from the orthodoxy that they were deeply, uh, deeply embedded in, right? So in reality, the ordination of women could be demonstrated from the New Testament. And, and also what could be demonstrated was that in the late New Testament period and into the second and third century, it was pushed to the side as the church tried to accommodate in some ways to the Roman culture, to a suspicious Roman culture that it found itself ever more involved in. So, but uh, we, we have seminary students read that editorial uh, in Community of Christ Theology because it's really, I think, an important piece of, of theology uh, from that period. Essentially, what was happening was the presidency was trying to prepare people for what was coming in 1984. Now, this 1984, uh, was DNC 156, sometimes I'm a little shocked that it hit people like a stone dropped out of heaven, when in fact, for 20 years or more, this had been on, on the docket. People had been talking about this. In fact, when I joined the church in 1975 in the South Central Michigan District, uh, I discovered... As an 18-year-old, there was a controversy there because a pastor in that district had submitted a call uh, to the office of elder for a woman uh, to the district president. The district president, who later became a restorationist, was not happy about this, sent it up the line, and it got stalled, 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 stalled. And that congregation became quite unhappy about that. And so this controversy had emerged. Um, so it, it, nine, uh, Section 156 was not a bolt from the blue, really. We there had been there had been dis discussion, argument, disagreement, uh, uh, debate for a long time about it. Um, I think what was shocking was that uh, it came from the prophet. <laughs> now I have to say, 1984 was my first experience as a delegate at World Conference, and. I was an elder. I was a newly ordained elder. So I was in the elders quorum meeting, which, which met in Stone Church, in the main sanctuary of Stone Church, packed, packed, packed. And uh, when, when, that, when the document was read, was, there was like this moment of like the, the, the deep silence that you would, <laughs> the, the nothing that's in the universe of silence, right? You, absolute silence. And then the whole chamber exploded and people were trying to get the floor, um, yelling, yelling, yelling to get the floor. And um, the arguments were of two kinds. One kind of argument was uh, the prophet's been deceived. Uh, don't pay any attention to the temple stuff. You know, that's uh, the, the, there's a, the, the, the woman stuff is a rotten apple that spoils the whole barrel. And so none of this is true. And the other kind of argument was, Scripture's not infallible. We've never believed that, and we we have to be open to new revelation. And this is this is this is already happening. And right, so it's kind of an, an argument that pitted 
old, very old interpretations of tradition with a lot of proof texting of some scripture versus new understandings of tradition and new understandings of scripture pitted the two things together. I, I was right there and I, I watched it. And then I, of course, was part of the uh, part of the, uh, the conference deliberations on Section 156. By the way, that same conference, there was also a resolution on open communion. <laughs> and there was a discussion session in the auditorium chamber. Uh, I actually spoke in favor of it. Um, but the, the people the people lined up at both two different microphones to speak for and against. The line was exceedingly long for that. So the 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 two the two churches were were having it out right there, really, on open communion, uh, which was going to take another ten years to formally come about, about ten more years to come about. But then ordination of women really was the the hot the hot button topic um, during the conference sessions on on that. One one piece, what one thing that a delegate said that was quite powerful, and I forget who the delegate was, but he had been a confidant of Fred M. Smith. And he said in his statement, Fred M. Smith told me this was going to happen one day and it would come by revelation. That was actually a little piece of personal experience tradition that was, I think, quite, quite helpful for uh, members who were on the fence there to know that. I, I don't remember the delegate's name, which is unfortunate, but I do remember him saying that. So anyway, that's... Garland, Garland, Garland Yes, thank you. That's exactly who it was. Uh, yeah, I remember right where he was standing when he said it. <laughs> so it was... Uh, now, uh, after the conference, out in jurisdictions, uh, regional presidents and state presidents had enormous firestorms to put out. And Charmaine and I worked for the church in the Michigan region, and our regional president, Gary Beebe, and regional bishop, Larry Norris, were exceptionally good leaders. And immediately, when we got back, they planned a series of meetings in four parts of the state that were connected then to the four campgrounds connected in those parts of the state. And uh, those meetings were, uh, say what you have to say, but we're going forward with this. And so it gave people a chance to air. Mm -hmm. And also hear from experiences from folks who've been at conference and so on. I think it, it helped significantly there to, to limit the, the subsequent uh, damage uh, caused by, by schismatics on that. So that's kind of a little bit of my experience of that whole era. Um, I can also say that uh, Charmaine was among the first group of women ordained in 1985. She was ordained November 17th, 1985, I believe it was. And, we were living in Toronto at the time. We came back to Michigan where it had been processed for that, for that event. So, um, so what else can I say about the theology of this period? Well, there were a couple of absolutely brilliant theologians who worked for the church then. Dwayne Cooey, who went into, who became a presiding evangelist during that era, and Jeffrey Spencer, who went into the Council of Twelve. Both of them became very dear friends and mentors to Charmaine and me. And, uh, uh, Cooey uh, had been very influential in the 60s and 70s, and, and Duane uh, was very much influenced by the theology of Paul Tillich. I asked him once, what's one of the most important things you ever read from Paul Tillich? And he told me Tillich's famous, uh, it's like 1947 or 8 sermon, You Are Accepted, a sermon on justification by faith, was ex extremely powerful to Duane. 
And Jeff Spencer became a, a, a an important personal friend as I was trying to navigate whether I wanted to stay with this <laughs> with this church or not. He's one who helped me when I was a seminary student to uh, realize that one one need not uh, uh, surrender one's intellect in order to be a member of the church. That was important for me at the time. Um, uh, this was a period in which the word grace came increasingly more fully into uh, Community of Christ vocabulary or RLDS vocabulary. Um, in the in the material that was prepared to, to help people uh, adjust to the Faith to Grow program in the early 80s and so on, uh, the concept of grace was lifted up. Prior to that, grace had been kind of a Grace had been spelled with four letters in, in the community of Christ. The we, we weren't like those Protestants who, who were saved by grace. Well, uh, we, we, we came to see that that was a, that was a problematic, a problematic theology. And, uh, I remember, uh, Jeff Spencer many years later in a lecture once saying that, that he had, he went to do a study on grace back in that period. And he went to the Book of Mormon and he went to the index of the Book of Mormon. And he knew the word grace appeared several times in the Book of Mormon, but it wasn't in the index. And he said, in the index, you went from God to grave without grace, <laughs> which is a very charming and powerful statement. And uh, uh, so then, of course, uh, Wallaceby's uh, Section 156 um, brings, brings peace and justice language right into the fore of the church, right into, into church life. And that's been... That's been catalytic ever since. But I think something else that's really important in Section 156 that, that gets overlooked is his, his use of the phrase in re regards to the temple, that it shall be a place in which the essential meaning of the restoration as healing and redeeming agent will be uh, explored and so on. Essential, right? What's the difference between essentials and peripherals? Or as they said in the 70s, uh, uh, ultimate principles and middle principles. That was language being used in the church. What are, what are our ultimates? You know, going back to Charles Neff wondering, gosh, what should we teach in Asia? What's, what's the most important stuff and what's less important? <laughs> and it, tur it turns out that, that one of the reasons there was a schism is because the less important stuff was the most important stuff for one group of people, right? And so the first, the first vision, the plates, the old story, Ina Smith Davis and so on, that, that had been uh, that had been the gospel for some people. Well, when Wallace uses that language of essential meaning as healing and redeeming agent, it it gave a lot of church members who were uncertain whether this denomination had anything further to offer them. If if all it was was a was a, a fundamentalist sect off of Mormonism, then there was nothing really here for a lot of people. But then. If the essential meaning of this can be identified as being a healing and redeeming agent in the world, that is, in other words, going from going from being the restored church to a church whose mission is to restore people, to to, to restore the humanity of people, that became a, a basis, a theological basis for lots of people to say, this is this is something I can I can sign on to. So I think that was a very insightful part of that section, and also what I would call. Uh, a an example of the reorganization slash community of Christ being the Protestant side of the Restoration Movement. Protestantism, if I may use Tillich's language, uh, Protestantism exists as a critic is a 
critical reduction to essential principles. And so after Nauvoo, we had to decide what's the most important stuff. We'd always been thinking about that, always been trying to figure out what's most important. Um, It's just that from the 1880s to the 1980s, the whole the whole one two church story, as it was laid out in the preaching charts, had had kind of uh, replaced the the search for critical essential principles. So, so um, what are some other things I can say about this era theologically? Um, you could say this is an era of, of clashing mythologies, right? An old an old an old mythology. I don't use mythology in a negative sense, but an old mythology of the 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 story the mythos of the restoration of the original church that story versus a story a new story of a church that is trying to come into come into thoughtful con, uh, conversation with late modernity and is willing to rethink itself and uh, strip down to its most essentials in order to do that so two different two different symbol systems at work there um this this is a this is a, a Charmaine and I were talking about this yesterday about this period. And she mentioned that section one fifty six Wally gives a very brief glimpse of the revelatory process. In other words, there's a little preamble, a little preamble to the to the section, and he talks about prayer and fasting and trying to carrying the burdens of the church and trying to understand what the spirit wants to say and. And that the, the nature of the stuff he's, he's about to bring forth is, is so revolutionary, he had to keep seeking over and over. Is this right? Is this right? In other words, he gives a window into the human side of the revelatory process. And I thought that was a, a really, really good, good point she made in it. It applies from that point on. You will see uh, subsequent, subsequent uh, sections of the Doctrine and Covenants often have in a preamble something about the experience of, of, the, of the prophet and it it helpfully demystifies the process right in other words this is a human being who's who has authority and is charged to discern these kinds of things but the rest how they wrestle with it so um something else that uh that she mentioned i think that's worth mentioning is that in this period you had people trying to rethink the nature of priesthood so for example larry norris who was the bishop of michigan uh charmaine reminded me he was he was insistent on on helping people understand that that priesthood was about servant ministry, about being a servant to others, which you would think is natural. And yet, uh, I remember very clearly there were two tiers in church life, quote unquote, the holy priesthood, and then the rest. <laughs> and uh, uh, you you could feel that tearing te- uh, easily in church life at the time, but. Uh, people like Larry began to take take priesthood and, and instead of an up-down hierarchy, began to, to shift it over 90 degrees so that it was a, a more lateral and less hierarchical in terms of how it functioned. I think that's been very, very important for us. So um, those are some things I can I can think of think of re- related to this period. One other thing I could mention to, or I think I should mention is that the concept of Zion went through some shifts in this period. Jeff Spencer wrote an article on Zion as symbol and process. And in the old mythology, which was still present, there were people who wanted to gather to Jackson County in the 1980s who 
or anticipating that Enoch City would drop out of the sky here when people got their stuff together <laughs> enough. And um, Roy Chevelle had long, long, long before that tried to steer people away from, from that sort of mythological idea of, of Zion and the kingdom of God. But it was, you know, it, 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 it had long play in the church, and so it was hard to steer people away from that. But uh, Jeff Spencer tries to argue, look, Zion, Zion is a process. It's an ongoing thing. Zion is the Zion is a word we use to describe this process of of uh, more fully trying to live out a vision of God's God's future in in the world, and so uh, that became new language for the church at the time. And I should also mention the 1982 hymnal, Hymns of the Saints, the Burgundy one, <laughs> which which for me at the time was the new hymnal <laughs> because the, the red the hymnal I saw, I, I used when I first joined the church was the gray hymnal. The gray from, hymnal, the hymnal. Yes. Right. The, from 19, 1956, I think it was, but hymns of the saints um, had a lot of new stuff in it as well as old stuff. And if you want, if you want to uh, get a sense for theological shifts, it's interesting to go to hymns of the saints and find hymns, that were in the gray hymnal that have been rewritten. Mm-hmm. So for example, the old David H. Smith hymn, uh, let us pray for one another, an old, an old prayer service hymn that had a kind of, it, it, it was lovely, but also dark. The, you know, the, the, the scourge goes flaming past. It's the sense of we're all huddled together waiting for the end to come and so on. Well, Morris Draper took that hymn and, and added Zion process language into it. And, uh, completely changed it uh, in in a way that that fit the church's sense of itself better in the 1980s. But you can you can compare uh, uh, hymns that were retained and changed, and you can learn a lot about theological change that way uh, just just by doing that kind of comparison. As well as hymns that didn't make it into the red hymnal that had been in the gray hymnal, including a bunch of national anthems and. Um, some old timey hymns that people loved that lamented that they were not included in the new hymn. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I'm at an age where uh, I can compare then to now. <laughs> and then in the early 1980s, if you went to an RLDS church service on a Sunday morning, there would be four men up front in dark suits with white, white shirts and narrow ties, narrow, dark ties. Um, and, uh, the service would follow the same pattern week after week. Um, the sermon would be 40 minutes long. And a test of your real ability as a priesthood was whether you could, quote, fill the hour. That's what it was referred to then. <laughs> uh, in those days, often there were Sunday evening services too. And Sunday evening service was, was similar, only shorter. And that was where often new priesthood members or younger priesthood members got a chance to practice preaching. So the sermons were shorter. And most congregations then had a Wednesday evening prayer service that was attended by, depending on the size of the congregation, uh, maybe 10%, a small number, you know, 10, 12, 15 people. And uh, those were uh, following uh, instruction that went back to Joseph III. There might be a a piano or organ prelude before the service, but once into the service, no instruments were used and everything was sung a cappella. There was usually a little call to worship, a few thoughts, and uh, two priesthood members typically, and another priesthood member would uh, 
give a short a short talk based on some kind of scripture topic that may or may not have been related to anything <laughs> at the time. But uh, and then we there would be a season of prayer and a season of testimony. And uh, uh, I have nothing but uh, very very fond memories of those experiences. Um, they were very formative for me as a 19, 20 year old. <laughs> so, but that's, that's what church life was like and reunions, even for dis- small districts, districts of six or seven congregations, reunions might have two or 300 people who were there full time. Um, and the congregational business meeting once a year, uh, you know, there, you might have somebody who was pastor for several years, uh, who was voted in each year. Um, it was it was a very different world from the world we have now entered into, where we are trying to figure out what is the relevancy of meeting together at all in lots of places. And uh, so there's part of me that misses those days, but a big part of me that misses nothing from those days, especially theologically. <laughs> so uh, we, we've we've uh, evolved, I think, in in very good directions. But it does not yet appear what we shall be going forward into the 21st century. It's uncharted territory ahead of us. Okay. So um, I, I, I appreciate that you um, have some fond memories for prayer services. Having been, having had them mandated in my family from the day I was born until I was old enough to say no at probably 16, my memories of them are very different. Um, although I do remember we referred to each other as brother and sister. So sister so-and-so and and brother so-and-so. I I do recall that. So I wanted to to just ask a a question about this pivotal time. Um, I went to a presentation by Tex Sample, who wrote a lot about oral traditions. And he used 1968 as kind of this idea that the world shifted and everything we did was different after 1968. And there's lots of sociological and um, theological discussion about that. But for Community of Christ, we've always lagged behind a little bit. So this period of time with Wallace B. Smith feels a lot like the church's 1968 so, especially with how inspired counsel is given to the church, it shifted after 156. So, I, I would appreciate hearing from each of you about that. What what does this period of time represent for you, um, in how things, how the world shifted for Community of Christ? So, Locke, I'm going to start with you. I'm intrigued. I think I need to process that a little bit. I I would have thought that W. Wallace was our 1968, um, just because I think uh, some of what he's doing is a reaction to a very delayed reaction to the 60s. Having said that, it turns out much of the language he's using is Albert A. Smith, 1940s. (laughs) He's he's drawing Albert's language (laughs) and putting them in his documents. Um, And so that, blows my theory out of the water. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, um, you know, I was three in 1968. So I I think I could agree with that, but I'd like to process a little more. Okay. Tony, how about you? Well, let me at least comment on the lag time thing. 
Um, I think the revolution that took place in the church in the 60s took 20 years actually to hit people. And we, we have <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, the, the carrier pigeons move slowly in community of Christ's life, right? And so um, it took, you know, and, and once they got there, once, once community of Christ's congregations or RLDS congregations started forming the seven commissions, right? The worship commission and the Zionic relations commission and the missionary commission, those commissions lasted decades. They lasted until long after we had moved beyond commission systems locally. It's just, it's, it's a, we, we have this kind of, uh, this sort of uh, slow evolutionary process out in the church. So um, I can, I can perhaps understand that, that the, the, the American cultural revolution that took place in 1968 took that long actually to hit uh community of Christ congregations. And that's partly because of the sectarian mindset of the church is a sect to use the term neutrally uh, is a very tightly knit uh, group of people who have kind of strong boundaries between inside and outside a real strong sense of their identity and their, and their reason for being, and they protect their boundaries. And so it takes a long time for things to permeate. So, um, yeah, I can see the 1980s. One of the things the 1980s did was it did create a, a kind of a decade and a half long identity crisis for the church, right? So uh, back in the back in the the one true church go ye and teach days, you knew exactly why you were LDS and why everybody else was wrong, or at least not right enough. <laughs> right. So once all of that had been, all the all the the basis for that had been falsified by showing you, you just can't, you just can't hold this. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make biblical sense even, right? Once, once that was, was absent for people who paid attention to that kind of thing, the question of who are we then is going to last for another 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not until we get into uh, the early 2000s uh, into the first part of the grant, into Grant McMurray's presidency where we begin to come out slowly come out of the identity crisis and have a sense, a, a dawning sense of this is who we are obviously connected to the new name, but also connected to theological shifts and changes. And, uh, I, I will, I will, a, a hill I will die on is that currently we know who we are and what we're about better than we have since 1960. It's we still have the lag, we still have the lag time effect <laughs> in congregations, but institutionally, we we know exactly who we are and have a strong sense of identity that we haven't had for sixty years. So, right. I think the enduring principles have been critical in that. Enduring principles critical in in fostering that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think so too. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the shift from people sharing who we are, the shift from basic beliefs to enduring principles. I have found that really fascinating as I've watched that transition take place in different places in the church. I, let me add one other thing I, I learned okay. from, from uh, a friend who was, who was a friend of a famous Quaker writer. And he got to know our church and got to know our story, our, our, the, the development of our story from the 1960s on. And he said, 
do you guys realize nobody's ever really done this before? <laughs> I mean, of course, there have been reformations and changes and shifts, but in the space of time we've done this in, nobody's ever really done it quite like this before. It's, it's very, it's very what, what we've been through is very unique to us. Um, and so I think that's, a, that's, very, that, that's very compelling to me. At least oh, nobody's good. done it before without inquisitions and... Right. And such, yes. Well, there have always been, you know, uh, religious revolutions and, and reformations and so on. But the kind of thing we've done internally yeah. is is very, very unique. Okay. So I sometimes ponder, and, and I don't, I wouldn't be part of the denomination if we hadn't done that. <laughs> but But I wonder how much of our current struggles are related to the pace of change and how much is simply the larger cultural factors that we can't control. Yeah. What might we have looked like if we had, had moved more deliberately? I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, um, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I think in a sense there was some deliberation in it. It's just, and average church people voted for it at world conference after world conference. They just didn't, you just couldn't see the big picture of what, what you were voting for, what, what the, what the, the outcomes would be and so on. Um, but um, it's, it's somewhat easy to, to Monday morning quarterback on, I wish church leaders in the seventies had done this, or I wish church leaders in the 1980s had done this. Um, but <laughs> when, when, when you're trying to manage Think of that far side cartoon of the crisis clinic on fire floating down the river toward the waterfall. When you're trying to manage the crisis clinic, uh, it's you have to do what you have to do at the moment. And so um, we have different kinds of principles in place now. If 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 we had to go through that again now, we would do it differently. But that's because we have grown. Right. I I do things differently now in my 60s than I would have done them in my 30s. It's because I've learned a few things. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't think uh, for me, I'm able to look back at that era and say, gosh, I wish church leaders had been, had been uh, more careful about this or about this or about this. Um, it was going to be hard to manage anything in a church that was actually two churches. Okay. So before we close, I want to call uh, our listeners' attention to some other Project Zion podcasts that might um, be of interest after the conversation today. So episode 34 is an interview with Wallace B. Smith that you can listen to and hear him talk about this period of time. And if you want to hear a different perspective on it, or maybe simply uh, a different angle on it, you can listen to episode 217, which is Julie Smith, who is the daughter of Wallace B. Smith. And in that conversation, she talks about this time period and what it was like in the household and being um, a female child of Wallace B. Smith as all of this unfolded. So there are more that discuss 156 and other aspects of our conversation today, but those two in particular are um, excellent ones to listen to. 
So any last comments or questions or anecdotes or anything from this time period that either of you would like to share? I think we did an amazing job of learning from our experience in the 1980s <laughs> and, and did um, a really nice job preparing people to discuss the, the name change, for example, which I think could have been much more disruptive, um, equipping them to process that by exploring the, the various names through the years, et cetera. And I think we also um, did a much better job at preparing people to, to have the national U.S. National Conference discussion. So I'm thrilled that we learned from our experience and, and I think of Okay. Yeah. Uh, two things. First of all, uh, I, I got to know Wally B a little bit over the years, and he was a poised, articulate, strong, and yet gentle, but very, very thoughtful leader. He was, uh, it, it, as I remember him from the, that period, uh, you couldn't have asked for better to get us through that period. And the second thing is that if I can slightly mod modify that quote, that famous quote from uh, uh, from the Civil Rights Movement um, and Martin Luther King, the the arc of the moral universe is long and messy, but it bends towards justice. And the church I belong to has been trying to stay on that arc, even though it's been messy at times. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for today's discussion and our next episode. We're going to explore the W. Grant McMurray era of Community of Christ. And some aspects of that that come to mind are um, what it means to be a prophetic people and something called T2000, which lives in the memory of the church the seminary, um, and other issues of exploration. So we'll look forward to that conversation coming up. In the meantime, be sure to catch up on all the topics Project Zion podcast covers at projectzionpodcast.org. And again, thank you, Locke, and thank you, Tony. I'm Karen Peter. Thanks for listening.